1: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, we are back here to talk about Ammonihah again. We did it before, but this is uh, this is kind of like the short and condensed version.
0: Yeah, Ammonihah 2.0.
1: Yeah, this is It is crazy. I, I just looked back on the old podcast that we've done about it for LDS Liberty before, and we took four podcasts for the whole thing. So we did two chapters a piece, but uh, today we're doing four chapters in an hour. So I don't know how we're going to get that done.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure either. I was thinking about it. And uh, yeah, we took four podcasts, and I think we went through chapter 14 or 15. Here we've got to do it in about one and a half podcasts. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, going through it this time, I definitely looked at a, a few different things than what we had uh, discussed on those other podcasts. But, you know, I, I have a different view of some things now, as always, you know, every time you read through the scriptures, you're going to pick up on different things because you're a different person. So uh, I really learned a lot by going through some of this stuff. And I'm hoping, you know, we're going to learn some more as we discuss it.
1: Absolutely. So let's recap. From the last few chapters, the Nephites are in a really precarious situation. They have a brand new system of government. Alma was the brand new leader, and he was both the high priest of the church, and he was the chief judge of the land. And when he saw war on the horizon, he went out as a military leader. He vanquished the enemy. The story of Nehor and Amalasai come about, and everything that that does to frame the socio-political narrative of the Nephites... And then he starts to realize in chapter three and four that the Nephites themselves are starting to go back into wickedness. It seems to be that the first transition into wickedness through Nehor and Amlici was political, but that in chapter four, he starts to realize that the church is now the really big protagonist. And it's coming along as, as an economic factor because they're becoming very prideful in their, in their wares and in what they have. And they start to persecute those who are not members of the church. And it actually gets to be pretty contentious. At that point, he ends up deciding, Hey, what, what am I going to do? I've got the political, I've got the, the religious, and then he goes out to, to give up the political and to be a missionary. And then last week was chapter five and seven. And my goodness, that was quite a bit.
0: Yeah, it's a a great preface to what happens here with Ammonihah because uh, we get bits of Alma's discourses from the people of Zarahemla in chapter 5 and the people of Gideon in chapter 7. He kind of touches on those themes again as he's talking to the people of Ammonihah. So starting in chapter 8, Alma is, is going and he preaches in some other cities, and this is all leading up to what's happening in Ammonihah. I think it's interesting here, there, there's some context that we go back to in verses 4 and 5 to understand some later verses. But in verse 4 here he says, And he began to teach the people in the land of Melech, according to the holy order of God by which he had been called. And he began to teach the people throughout all the land of Melech. And it came to pass that the people came to him throughout all the borders of the land, which was by the wilderness side. So here goes Alma as the minister, as the high priest, to teach the people. And everyone's gathering. Everyone's listening to him. This is Alma. He's a very famous person. He didn't have problems drawing crowds in Zarahemla. He didn't have problems drawing crowds in Gideon. People listened to him. They did what he asked. There didn't appear to be much argument about what he was saying. They knew he was right, so forth. Same with Melik, right? And all these people are coming to him and listening to him. This is just a traveling preacher and and people are listening. They're repenting and so forth. Then he gets to Ammonihah and this is a different story. So verses nine and 10, now Satan had gotten great hold upon the hearts of the people of the city of Ammonihah. Therefore they would not hearken unto the words of Alma. Nevertheless, Alma labored much in the spirit, wrestling with God in mighty prayer, and he would pour out that he would pour out his spirit upon the people who were in the city, that he would also grant that he might baptize them unto repentance. so here like I was saying, Alma is kind of listened to by virtue of his calling and his notoriety um, he may not have really struggled before to to get people to listen to him, but now he's actually having to go out and teach people of Ammonihah and these people don't treat him as an authority anymore. In fact, in the following verses, they speak to that. They say, we're not of your church. You have no authority there. You're not even chief judge anymore. We don't have to listen to you. And so now Alma's laboring much in the spirit, right? He can't really rely on the fact that he's a famous person or that people should listen to him because he's the high priest. Now he has to really dig deep and find authority from where it really comes from. Um, This made me think of DNC 121, right? The true nature of the priesthood. Alma gets to this later when he starts talking about how high priests are called in chapter 13. And we'll get to that next time. But uh, I just thought it was so fascinating how this here is another moment for Alma to really develop, right? This is, this is level up. Alma's got to level up right here. And uh, it's very interesting and amazing how he does it.
1: Yeah, like what you said there about identity and about the people's identity to authority. Because it's who are the people looking as their sources of authority? And we're going to find out later on that they're looking very much to their political authority. Because when Alma comes in as this seeming religious authority or a traveling preacher or however they viewed him, they're not members of the church that he's over. There's absolutely no authority that they perceive they have an identity to. And so I, I think that's fascinating that the people were so transfixed on their political identities, their, their their kind of their city nationalism, that when the truth came, they reviled him and they spit upon him and they caused that he should be cast out of their city. And when I read this in Alma 8.13, that they caused that he should be cast out of their city, that really drew me back to Nehor when it said that he was caused to admit that what he taught was not right, that 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 we're still using that same verb there, caused. And it looks to be a little bit more like a violent or a little bit of a coerced or a little bit of a more of a not persuasive, let's put it that way. <laughs> they didn't pers- <laughs> They didn't persuade Alma to leave. So I think I, I thought that was really interesting about caused. I think it gives a little bit more evidence to maybe what happened with Nihor, at least what happened with the with the sociocultural perception of those who followed after his his order but then alma wipes his feet as it were it says he sets his back to to these people and he seeks to and he's leaving and as he's leaving lo and behold the angel that had appeared to him years before when he was going around doing no good and tells him to go back And I can imagine the frustration of Alma, who's like, did you just see what they did with me? They, you know, they were spitting on me and they were reviling me and they did quote unquote cause. And we know what that means. And (laughs) and so the angel, and this is where things really get interesting for me is in verse 17 for behold, this is the angel speaking for behold, they, the people of Ammonihah, Do study at this time that they may destroy the liberty of thy people, for thus saith the Lord, which is contrary to the statutes and judgments and commandments which he has given unto his people. Now, this is a fascinating verse because we're talking about liberty being the foundation and the reason for why Alma has to go back. But it's not just political liberty, which is what the people of Ammonihah are looking for, because remember, their, their identity is to the secular state, to, to their judges, to their lawyers, to their, to their city. But what Alma is looking at here is that it's the, the statutes, the judgments, and the commandments, not that Mosiah gave, not that the chief judges administer, but it's the statutes, judgments, and commandments that God has given unto his people. So Alma has to return in the authority of being the high priest to impart this message to the people. And it's fascinating when we finally put it and frame the rest of the chapters and the rest of the discussion in terms of liberty this way. It completely revolutionizes, or it should revolutionize, the way that we look to liberty. Because in our sociocultural climate, whenever you think of liberty or freedom or you know, honor or courage, you know, images of the red, white, and the blue, or of, of like the political come to mind, right? Because that's how we're trained. We're trained to think that these institutions are what, what secure and provide and take care of our liberty and freedom. And what this is showing us, and for me, it's really clear, but then again, I've read it in this context a lot. So it kind of, maybe it's my, even my own bias and I accept that, but it's showing that he's going through this process of understanding the true liberty is about God's commandments, not about the political. And so when Alma goes in there and he starts to go back into the city, all of a sudden it's in the context outside of the political, but then he comes right into into conflict with that political again.
0: I love how just previous to meeting the angel, it says here again, Alma, he's being weighed down with sorrow, waiting through much tribulation, and anguish of soul because of the wickedness of the people who were in the city of Ammonihah. And it came to pass, while Alma was thus weighed down with sorrow, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him. That is so amazing to me that the Lord can send us these great blessings, messengers, in times of some of our greatest sorrow. And here Alma is just distraught uh, what to do. And the angel comes and the first thing he says is that he's blessed. Oh my goodness. So what does that evoke? When I was reading this, the, the thought I had was, what do you mean blessed art thou? He just went through all of this stuff. He's not blessed at all. And I was like, oh wait, what about the Beatitudes? You know, we had that short discussion In the previous podcast about sort of superimposing the Beatitudes on the experiences we see these prophets have in the scriptures. And wow, when I saw that, I started searching more for it in this chapter, especially. And it really started jumping out at me that this process that Alma is going through as he's being prepared to teach the people of Ammonihah is very close um, maybe perfectly similar to Christ's Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. So, I see verses like nine and ten, uh, especially as Alma his being poor in spirit, right? Because he's come up against this city of Ammonihah. He thought Alma thought. Everybody's going to listen to me, you know, it's going so well. Everybody's listening and they're getting baptized and this is going really well. And boom, he gets hit with Ammonihah and he has to step back and really question, okay, how I've been doing this before doesn't work anymore. He's got to really do some soul searching. So there's this, there's this emptying that has to happen. He has to get rid of all these presuppositions, uh, pride. All of this stuff, he has to struggle, wrestle with God in mighty prayer that he can have his spirit. And I I see that, you know, as him being poor in spirit so he can receive the spirit of the Lord. I see him after he's going through these persecutions. He's mourning, right? He's waiting through much tribulation and sorrow. That's when the angel comes to comfort him. Um, I see as he listens to the angel, he goes... And he does what the angel commands him to do, even though he knows it means he's going to experience all those things he just did all over again. And he obeys in a humble and meek way, right? Blessed are the meek. And here Alma is, he goes into the city and he asks a random person for food. I mean, how vulnerable is that, right? How meek is that? And there's Amulek and he's willing he is merciful right so here we come to bless are the merciful and and we have almost an almost an interesting uh sort of a I, i'm not sure what to call it but uh you know we talk about hung uh, christ talks about the metaphor of hunger and hungering and thirsting after righteousness but here then we have alma actually hungering physically <laughs> and uh and then Amulek feeding him. I just thought it was an interesting imagery to what's really going on spiritually, right? Because Alma is hungering physically, but Amulek is hungering and thirsting spiritually, and they feed each other. And I think that's so fascinating in, in couched in this moment of mercy, right? where the merciful are receiving mercy that Alma and Amulek should meet each other and because of the blessings of the Lord would feed each other, that Alma would bless Amulek in all his house and that Amulek would feed Alma. I think that's so fascinating. They're both filled with the spirit of God because of, uh, of their thirst. And um, it says in verse 31, And they had power given unto them insomuch that they could not be confined in dungeons neither was it possible that any man could slay them. This was reminiscent to me of the three Nephites, right? That they are put in something like a terrestrial state and they can't be confined in dungeons and, um, you know, they play with the wild beasts or whatever, they can't be killed. And how is this not analogous to inheriting the earth? Right. Um, That, you rise above that telestial state and all things of a telestial state become subject to you in terms of inheriting the earth. And then again, the Lord gives them power to go forth. I I just, I mean, thank you so much, Shiloh, for bringing up the Beatitudes as a framework to sort of, you know, put on and see the experience of prophets because it opened up a lot of this experience of Alma to me that I I hadn't seen before, and it's so fascinating.
1: Wow! Yeah, that's wow. That's I didn't even get all that this time around. That's amazing. <laughs> so, what did you get? <laughs> I don't even know anymore. I just want to read it again. I was like, let's just, let's just pause this for a while and come back to it because just wow. I'm just looking at that thinking, right? yeah,
0: yeah. I I mean, I that's why I spent I spent all this time on chapter eight. And then, like after I got done with, it, I was just like, "Holy cow, that's just <laughs> preparing to go to
1: Emma." I haven't even talked to him yet. <laughs> <laughs> and I, what I love here is, is just as you were re- you were reading verse nine and ten, it came to me again that that he says, and now Satan had gotten great a hold upon the hearts of the people. Satan is Hebrew for a, the accuser, and he is the person who. Is always getting us to feel that we're not worthy. He's always getting us to feel like we are less than we are. That we're not children of God. You know, I study nonviolence, and I love, I love the study of nonviolence. And one of the primary principles of the study of nonviolence is that we have to always see the humanity in others, and that the human brain is actually wired to never commit violence on another human being. Um, call it this, call it the light of Christ, call it evolution, call it whatever you will. But there's a part of our brain, we just don't commit violence. And in order for the brain to overcome that psychological barrier of committing violence on another human being, we have to see them as something else other than human. And so when there's conflict and we start to call each other by different names, and you see, you know, when people posture before they fight, they start to call each other derogatory names. Well, that's the psychological way that the brain is trying to justify committing violence on another human being to be able to make them something less than human. And that's Satan. He's the accuser. He's always the one accusing the other person of being less than who and what they are. And when Satan has got a greater hold upon the people, the people are acting and they're perceiving less, and, less than what they really are. But it says here that Alma labored much in the spirit, wrestling with God in mighty prayer that he would pour out his spirit upon the people. And I love that pour out his spirit because you cannot pour out and fill cups that are already full. And these people are already full of their own personal accusation. And we're going to find that with Zeezrom later on, that he was full of lies and deceit and contention. And it was all because of his desire to get gain. And he knew it. In fact, it says he knew it, and we'll get to that. But when is praying for this, he's praying that the people will be poured out. This is an implicit prayer. If he's praying that people will be filled— there's already a prayer, even if it's unspoken, that he's praying that they will have to be emptied. And just having read through chapter twelve again and kind of seeing Zeezrom, God does in that in that correspondence. And we're going to talk about that with Zeezrom. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but we're going to find out that Zeezrom does empty. and He sees his state, he sees it, and he starts to realize that exactly what he's done. And anyway, yeah, that's fantastic. I love that beatitude there of. Alma praying for the beatitudes of another, and God answering and saying, "Yeah, go back. I've I've been preparing something. You're gonna need someone there here, though. Go to go to Amulek and it's just, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. I love that. It's
0: it's very interesting. And and then to see, like I was saying before, this process play out with Zeezrom as well. Um, and I, I would, um, we, we may not, may not even get to that to hash that out, but that would be something that would be really beneficial. I think for any person to do, to look at Zeezrom's process of him, um, going through the process of the Beatitudes and then obviously, or maybe not obviously, but, uh, the next step on that, right, is to look at how that experience of Alma and Zeezrom, Um, How that helps us understand the Beatitudes better for ourselves, how that helps us understand how we go through that process, uh, what it means for us. You know, the Lord is preparing Alma to teach these people of Ammonihah and uh, Alma at this point, it probably doesn't have any clue what's coming or barely a clue what's coming, but it's just going to get worse and worse. And here we have that final beatitude, right? Blessed for those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. I mean, goodness, that's the culmination of Amniha, right? And yeah. that's what happens to those people who listen to Alma. And uh, so this whole story can, can you know, really fits fits in with that really well, and it provides a very fascinating framework for us to to see the Lord's hand in gathering the righteous and His mercy and long-suffering towards His children, um, even as wicked as the people of Ammonihah were and as wicked as Zeezrom himself was, that He, the Lord was merciful. And in the very moment you know, it, it only took that moment for Zeezrom to question himself, to empty himself a little bit, for a little bit of the portion of the spirit of the Lord to enter, and then that mercy, that grace was able to have a place in his heart, and we then see this whole transformation of Zeezrom, and it's it's so amazing.
1: Everything. So really I to- guess
0: I got ahead on that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's hard to do. It. We'll bounce back and forth a few times, I'm sure. Leading up to Zeezrom, though, is this masterful discourse in chapter 19 that Alma gives. And as I'm reading, just reading through it right now, and I'm looking at some of my notes on the side that I've I've written in the margins here, Alma starts to, and you said it, Ben, there here just a few minutes ago, about how Alma is repeating some of the things that he said in Zarahemla. For instance, in Zarahemla, he talked about remembering our fathers. Remember, remember that they were they were delivered by God. Remember that he, he, he watched over them. And he's doing the same thing here. But here he's invoking Lehi. And I think it's fascinating that the story of Lehi, it's 500 years old at yeah. that time. They don't have the truth. They don't have the written in you know in the internet the written record that we do or the internet as we do but yet this story is still so powerful that Alma is using this story like Nephi used the exodus story all the time and that must have been a powerful enough narrative then but this narrative is 500 years old and he's going back to it so when Alma comes in he's he's talking to them but what i find is interesting about the uh, the people of Ammonihah is they they say who is god that sendeth no more authority than one man among this people to declare unto them the truth of such great and marvelous things. What a a powerful statement that is. It's in chapter 9, verse 6. Is that they are questioning the authority of their God. And they're questioning, and and so it's this discussion of authority, and they're questioning God. Who, Who is, who seeks for truth versus who seeks for authority? And these people are looking for authority. They're not looking for truth. And I can't help but think of Christ when he just stood up and he just spoke truth. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are like, this guy speaks as one having authority. We don't understand who and what this guy is. But they're looking for authority because they're placing emphasis. You know, I had an experience this last weekend. We we went out and uh, had a I had a weekend with some friends we we ended up uh, doing an Airbnb we shared an Airbnb together and they have the cutest kids our friends and and they, their son and whenever i go there and i play with their son a lot of the times what happens is is he has to get warmed up to me at first and whenever i go over there i i, I grab him or i look at him weird and i smile at him he'll always look at his dad to and his and then his dad will laugh you know on teaching him that, you know this is a funny thing and then at that point once he's gotten the cue from his father that it's been okay Then he's just all fun and games for the rest of the weekend, Mm -hmm. right? But he has to check to see what that authority is. And so a lot of our lives, we do this. And I've done this in my own life too. And I was even talking to my wife about this today, about this concept of we look to authority for validation of how we're supposed to respond. As human beings, we don't venture into the wilderness very well on our own. We are always looking for authority figures, here and there and everywhere and we're always, you know, side glancing or or looking around for that authority. And and I think a lot of the times we that's very necessary, but I've also known in my life that some of the the deepest, most sacred experiences I've had have been times when I have ventured out into this this wilderness that I've never been before and I've never seen before and no one's ever talked about before. And I want to know what this, what, what's here and what life experience is here. And I start looking around for authority. Like, like are there people that have talked about this experience? Mm-hmm. Am I experiencing something new, unique? And like I, I think I said last time, I'm just looking for those moments where I can go out and just sit with God and see what that experience is, is like. And I think in a lot of ways, I, I see Alma trying to provide this space and open the space up for them to be able to, to see this but they're responding back to him with no desire whatsoever to open up a space to understand or to see who God is. All they're looking at is authority. And so it's like, all right, well, if you just want authority, we're going to give you authority. And they become totally surprised when Amulek starts up and starts talking about the same thing. They're like, wow, there's more than one of you. And it just blew their mind. And that it was a man of their own people who stood up and started to do these things. So I thought that kind of perception of authority uh, was really interesting among the people of Ammonihah.
0: Huh? I really like the concept you brought up of the wilderness um, being a place that we can go that's sort of uh, sort of void of any of those uh, worldly authorities, right? Yeah. Um, it's just nature, and so it's a place where we can go and and commune with God because we're not tied down by these worldly authorities. And I, I think that's an interesting perspective and, and a way that I hadn't quite viewed, you know, in the scriptures, wilderness or mountains or whatever, are always this place where you can go and, and commune with God. But I hadn't quite tied it to the concept of possibly there being this, um, uh, prejudice or or tie or baggage, I guess you could say, of of worldly authority that they were always tied to when we're not sort of out and and on our own and and I like that, you know, I I've always liked the the story of Enos where he goes out in the wilderness and this at this moment this is a place where he can empty himself right to God and. And not not with that that baggage. So I, I like that idea of that wilderness where you can go. And and it's difficult in this context with these people of Ammonihah because you've got all these lawyers and judges gathered, and they're all you know sort of looking at each other and and persecuting each other. And so the courage that Zeezrom exhibits here is pretty amazing. Um, shows his his strength of character if if he could you know just got that bit of emptiness in his heart for the spirit to be in. Uh, you talked about how the themes sort of cross over here between chapter five and chapter nine. I thought it was just a, an interesting little point. I don't know how much significance is to it, but, but I like, you know, sort of the contrast of words. In chapter five, he uses the word remember a lot in a positive sense. Here, he uses the word forgotten a lot more and uh, or not remember right so it's a much more negative context that he's couched this this sermon to the Ammonihahites. and I don't know if that's simply because that's what they needed to receive or that we're seeing a little bit of Alma's frustration and negativity coming out here with the Ammonihahites. you know he it, again he's struggling so much in the spirit to love this people um, because they're the profession of Nihor there's always been this friction and uh, they've persecuted him already when he went there to preach. And so, yeah, Alma's in this position where he's being really, really challenged to be able to find love and patience and preach the word like it's supposed to be preached.
1: Yeah, when he gets in there and he starts preaching, he's he's just straight talking doctrine or he's, he's talking about the spirit and he comes in. And I think this is fascinating because we got to go back to that discussion. This is all about liberty. And then he gets in there and just starts talking about their eternal soul, (laughs) basically the plan of salvation. And he talks about an identity with the Lamanites, right? So this is hitting all of their sociocultural idols, idols, as it were, right? And, and so he's like, listen, even the Lamanites, they don't, they don't have these traditions and it's going to be better for them than you. And you've been given all of these things and you think that you can actually keep all of these things and, and remain in a state of willful rebellion against God. And it he kind of prophesies what's going to happen. But in verse 26, I love that Alma is starting to transition and verse 26 of chapter nine really was reminiscent to me of sec, of DNC 121. Where he says, and not many days hence, the son of God shall come in his glory. Now, this is really interesting because we talk about the son of man and and God coming in his glory, but yet God through being made flesh, there wasn't a whole, I mean, we got heavenly concourses of angels at the nativity scene, but there there wasn't a whole lot of glory. You know, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth kind of thing? (laughs) So it's, it's fascinating to me that Alma is talking about God coming in his glory and his glory shall be the glory of the only begotten of the father. Wow. What, what is Alma looking for? What, what is this thing that Alma sees that this glory, that is the glory of the only begotten of the father. He says, and he is full of grace and equity and truth. He's full of patience and mercy long-suffering. He's quick to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. Man, I read that and I said, wow, that is the glory of God. The glory of God is his patience, his mercy, his long-suffering. How quick he is to hear the cries of his people and to answer their prayers. That's not the glory we look at when we think of glory.
0: Hmm. That is an interesting point because, you know, in my mind, I see that the second coming picture, right, that we're we, – it's probably in every single building. Um, you've got that second coming picture, which is great, but it's it presents this this concept that we have a myth, not in an untrue sense, but a myth in, in terms of a this shared narrative that we all look to of Christ's second coming it's going to come in the clouds and there's numberless concourses of angels, right? And and that is the picture of glory, right? If you had to put a picture in the dictionary next to the word glory, that's it, right? Yeah. But um and and that's that's all well and great because that's a a visual representation of of what is supposed to awe us, right? Um and it's a great painting. But here is what is the real glory that what it, what we're talking about in terms of the heart, what Christ does for us in our hearts. And that's where we see, we see and feel and experience the glory of God. And so I, I like that as, as pointed out, you know, the point here that Alma gets into about the Lamanites is interesting. We, we read, we can almost read between the lines a little bit here that that the Ammonihahites did not like the Lamanites any more than the general people of Nephi. And in fact, they may have liked them even less. Um, I see the Ammonihahites as feeling like they're superior to the overall people of Nephi and um, that the Lamanites are just scum, right? Um and so here Alma goes and he says, you know, the Lamanites are actually better than you guys. <laughs> and it's like, man, Alma, that's a low blow, you know? <laughs> but, but he's uh, Alma's serious uh, that the Lamanites are actually a people that overall have, have been uh, more obedient to the light and knowledge they've received. And the Lord has great blessings for them. Verse 16, for there are many promises which are extended to the Lamanites, for it is because of the traditions of their fathers that caused them to remain in their state of ignorance. Therefore the Lord will be merciful unto them and prolong their existence in the land. And at some period of time, they will be brought to believe in his word and to know of the incorrectness of the traditions of their fathers. And many of them will be saved for the Lord will be merciful unto all who call on his name. Okay. So interesting because what are all of Alma's friends doing right here at this exact moment they're right. over there <laughs> teaching to the lamanites and he knows that they went over there but he hasn't heard anything for all he knows they're dead um so his friends are over there teaching to teaching the lamanites and here he is talking about how the lamanites will receive the truth one day um but that's what is actually happening with ammon and aaron omner himnai Right, and all the people that went with them to teach. Uh, so I always thought that was so interesting that Alma here is is saying this is going to happen. It's a prophecy uh, that is at that very moment coming true. And he doesn't. He may not understand fully how true it's becoming. You know, he may have an inkling. Well, maybe maybe they're getting somewhere. I don't know. But man, he. I don't know that Alma imagined the success that Ammon and his brethren had. But here he is talking about it.
1: Yeah, who can possibly imagine? I mean, we're going to read, you know, in a few weeks about Ammon's success and about how the Nephites laughed him to scorn. And he's he's like, but we didn't go up there to destroy our enemies. We went up there to see if we could save a few of their souls. I can't read that story without just, just weeping. But the,
0: Yeah, every time I read that, it chokes me up.
1: <laughs> yeah. So here we have—yeah, I love that. I love that with— with Alma uh, being able to... He hasn't seen them. They're best friends, right? They're going around. They haven't seen each other for years. And yet Alma is there. I had never thought about that before. And so as Alma progresses and Alma sits down, we have Amulek stand up and he starts giving his genealogy. And I, I think it's interesting. It, it, I haven't studied it a lot, but I think there's a lot that could be said about the Nephite culture and civilization. And I think there's a lot more there about authenticities of the Book of Mormon based on simply Amulek's getting up and saying hey this is my genealogy I've come from this land I came from Jerusalem I'm a descendant of Manasseh I was the son of Joseph who was sold into Egypt at the hands of his brother and I'm like why are you telling everybody this I don't ever stand up in front of people and I'm like unless hold behold verily I am Shiloh you know I am the son of Logan's back from Scotland who was thus thrown over by King James and his land's inheritance were made forth I don't <laughs> you should that sounds awesome <laughs> I don't, I don't announce myself that way, but you know, their culture and tradition, that's how they did it. So that's how they roll. I think there's a lot of really cool information that's probably there that I just haven't studied yet, but he does. He goes through and announces who and what he is and he doesn't do more than just tell the people that Alma came in and that he had blessed his family and the people are stunned. Alma's not laying down anything yet. He's, he just came out there and he's like, Hey, Alma's a good guy. And you know that I have a good reputation and the people are, are a little bit bit freaked out. So then that's when, that's when Amulek really starts going after the attorneys and the, you know, the lawyers, the judges and where they think he's coming after the law. And, so th- then at that point the attorney stood up, right they're, and they start to cross him and they start to try to uh, bring witnesses against him to so that they could try to to catch him in his words. they're They're now coming after their own. Now they knew not, and this is uh, chapter 10 17, and they knew not that Amulet could know of their designs. but it came to pass that as they began to question him, he perceived their thoughts and he said unto them, O ye wicked and perverse generation, ye lawyers and hypocrites, for you are laying the foundation of the devil." If you were laying the traps and snares to catch the holy ones of God, ye are laying plans to pervert the ways of righteousness and to bring down the wrath of God upon your heads, even unto the utter destruction of this people. Well, that starts going back to the original thing about liberty, right? So now Amulek is making this physical and political, but then he's still not going to make it political because he's going to start talking about the principles and the doctrines of the gospel, and then the people are still in a political mindset. This is a wonderful, wonderful interplay between Amulek using the people's law against them by simply talking about the principles of, of the gospel. It's just it's it's a it's a fun back and forth to realize that they are talking about how living righteously is true liberty and freedom, regardless of the external world around you. But true living, truly righteous lives produces a society and a civilization of righteousness and of freedom and of liberty. And so how can you possibly double down knowing this on the political world and simply try to recraft better laws? How You know, let's go get better laws. That's the solution. We, we just haven't had the right laws yet. If we would have had the right laws, then we could create the right good society. And by crafting enough legislation, we can go out and make good society, right? And it's just, that's never been the way it's ever worked. That's never going to be the way it ever works. The power of a people is in their righteousness and about how they become self-governing. And it seems to be Elm and Amulek get that very concept.
0: You know, uh, Amulek Amulek, uh, sort of touches on this here with verses 22 and 23, because he's making the case to them that you know, the only reason you guys haven't already been destroyed is because there are some righteous among you who are sort of like the spiritual leavening that Christ talks about. Um, <clears throat> they, this, these few righteous among you are faithful, and they are sort of holding the people collectively off of that destructive edge. Uh, he says in verse 22, If it were not for the prayers of the righteous who are now in the land, that ye would even now be visited with utter destruction. So verse 23, But it is by the prayers of the righteous that ye are spared. Now therefore, if ye will cast out the righteous from among you, then will not the Lord stay his hand. Okay, again, going back to this perspective that we talked about with with the Lord um, and the destruction. But, um, you know, we find out that there is a righteous group of people or a people should we say that are willing to repent that are in the city of Ammonihah. And this is one of the principal reasons that the Lord sent Alma back was to get these people to teach them, to help them repent um, and to receive the kingdom of God. And what, what there's what Amulek says here is, uh, is very interesting because he's foreshadowing what's going to happen. And this is exactly what happens Those people repent, they're cast out from among the Ammonihahites, and then very soon thereafter, Ammonihah is completely destroyed. Um, And so we we have this prophecy, so to speak, of Amulek against the people. Again, another warning to them that from their perspective, this is going to be the Lord destroying because they're not willing to repent.
1: One of my studies on the side that I've been going through, in part of my own personal discipleship and my own process, my own relationship with God, there, and it's a little bit more pronounced outside of uh, church theological circles. But there's this concept, a new way of looking at God, uh, that's called a transformational God, as opposed to a transactional one. And it's an idea that I th- that I think I will I'll talk more and more and more about. But just to kind of introduce it here at the beginning. Religion almost entirely, probably ninety five percent of religion and everything that I ever grew up with always talks about the transactional God. It's the if then God. Um, there are several stages of development of how we view God and how we come to God. One of the first stages of development is that we look at God as kind of an ambivalent not really caring god. he's He's just kind of there on the side, he doesn't really care doesn't really want to be involved. If he gets involved, sometimes awesome. Um, but he, you know, doesn't really care. Then there's this second stage where God cares, but he's never truly for you. He's, he's for you. So long as you do what he says, but if you don't do what he says, then he's going to destroy you. So there's this transactional God where so long as you do what he says, then you're good. And you've got God on your side and God will even provide a way for you to be on his side. But if you don't be on his side, and if you ever find yourself over on this other side, he's coming after you to destroy you. And so this God is never truly completely for or against you. Um, It's against you when you don't do what he says, he's for you when you do. And this is the way most relationships and, 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 Transactions with God are, are explained, and and even here in the text and throughout the Book of Mormon, and most of our discussions about God fall in this category. But then there's this this other view of God that he is a transcendent God where he is more for you than you will ever be for yourself. That he is the perpetual father of the prodigal son, always running after you. That there, he, is, he is the savior, that is, he's is that shepherd that is coming after the one all of the time that there is a moment where we will never be worthy of, of, of enough of God's grace for him to come after us or or to, to be there. So we will never really truly do anything of our own, but he is there because that is who he is. And so it's a new way of looking that the universe is more for you than against you. It's, it's, it's a universe where Christ is in and through everything. Section 88 says a lot about the light of Christ and about how the light of Christ permeates and is in and through all things. That reality is, a. It, we live in a Christ-soaked world where everything, like Alma says, everything testifies that there is a God, that all things denote that there is a God because it's a Christ-soaked world. They're the light of Christ is in all things and all things are for us. And so, what is lacking is our perception. And so, as we get into some of these discussions here, I think it's interesting, especially with Alma and Amulek talking about the people. They are talking very transactionally. If you repent, then then you'll be saved. If you don't repent, then you're going to go to, to, go to hell. And that's just and that's just fine. But one of the things that I think is has been fascinating here is when he's talking about and and, and you brought it up here in verse 10 verse 22 and I say unto you that if it were not for the prayers of the righteous who are now in the land that you would even now be visited with utter destruction yet it would not be by flood as were the people in the days of Noah but it would be by famine and pestilence and the sword and there's a lot of authors that I'm reading and I have to read a lot to kind of get out of a transactional mindset because that's where I'm so firmly rooted and I'm not even fully out of it I still think that way most of the time but sometimes I catch glimpses of the other and one of the things that have helped me see it is this concept of recognizing that that which I perceive as God's wrath or destruction, there are, there are old Hebrew, Hebrew traditions in certain places where they believed that destruction and war were basically you leaving the presence of God. That the presence of God, when, when God introduces himself into, into a place, that presence is what creates order. And leaving the presence of God or leaving that is what, the further away from God you get, you experience chaos and destruction. So God never leaves us, but we leave God. And in that, we start to experience the consequences of our actions. And in fact, this is really interesting because in the scriptures, it talks about the wrath of God quite a bit. And this is far more metaphorical than it is literal but yet we take it as we take it as a literal a literal term when we think that God is going to come after us in, in this wrath. But there's uh, turning here to a uh, to a quote. Let me get here. <clears throat> so a biblical definition of wrath is it's the literal human wrath which combines our emotional anger with violent retribution. That it's us that that our perception of the wrath of God is our own human emotion that combines our anger and violent retribution that w- kind of what Mormon talks about in Mormon chapter two, what he sees of his people that they mourned because they would not always find happiness in sin. So unwrathing as it were, God is this interpretive process by which we recognize that wrath is a metaphor for God's consent or rather a giving over to the consequences of sin. That even when the text may describe that there are events that God was actively provoked into a violent retribution and punishing for the sake of punishing, the what's going on is that there is just this natural consequence in the universe that we are now suffering the actions or the consequences of our own actions. And then we turn around and we perceive and we blame God for it. God's doing this. God's coming against us. Well, no. It's like when you jump out of a 10-story building and pretend that you're a bird and you don't live according to the true principles of your humanity, don't blame God for the consequences when you fall, you know? And so I see a lot of that here in the text as we start to see that the prayers of the righteous, those people that are keeping the order together are what are keeping violence and destruction and famine away. But as if they remove themselves then at that point, the people have now removed themselves as a whole away from the presence of God. Where now famine and pestilence and the sword and destruction become the consequence for it. Anyway, it was just—I di- thought it was a different way of looking at it that—that that was uh, that kind of yeah. helped me see it from a different perspective.
0: No, and I think uh, that really is about perspective, and I think it's a much more consistent way to view the way that the scriptures talk about the wrath of God as a human construct or or perception of how God is operating in our lives according to our own wickedness or righteousness. Because if repentance is a change of our view and perception about who God is and who we are, and we repent, and what happens when we repent? We experience the love of God. Well, how did we experience the love of God? Because we changed our perception of who he is. And if we don't repent, what do we experience? We experience the wrath of God because we have not changed our perception of who he is. But that's not because he's a wrathful, vengeful God. It's because we haven't repented. And so we aren't able to see that. And here's the people of Ammonihah and Amulek is trying to teach them about all of these principles and they're refusing to listen. Here we have at the end of chapter 10, um, verse 25, why will you yield yourselves unto him that he may have power over you? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Satan to blind your eyes, that you will not understand the words, which are spoken according to their truth. For behold, if I testified against your law, you do not understand. Ye say that I have spoken against your law, but I have not, but I have spoken in favor of your law to your condemnation. And now behold, I say unto you that the foundation of the destruction of this people is being, is beginning to be laid by the unrighteousness of your lawyers and your judges. <clears throat> so often there's a discussion of, you know, uh, just obey the law, right? You know, just uh, what, what's, what's the statement here? Um, you know, we, 12th article of faith, right?
1: Yeah, to be subject to all the laws and the kingdoms and the rules. Yeah,
0: yeah, as 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 if just you know every civil law has this full validity uh, to it, even when they contradict each other, right? And anytime that you talk about the unjustness of a law, um, there's always somebody there that says, "Well, it's the law, and you know you have to obey the law because that's morality." And and so here Amulek is talking about you know the actual law that was given to them by. King Mosiah and the laws of God and that those are the laws we should be following and looking to. And the people of Ammonihah have apparently come up with all kinds of other crafty laws and designs with all of their lawyers and judges. And all of these crafts are designed to get gain. We find out in the next chapter, Um, they're all designed to stir up contentions among the people so that they can pit them against each other and get gain. Um, So they've developed this whole framework of these laws that, that encourage contention, not resolve it. And so here Amulek is criticizing that, and they're saying, oh, you're criticizing our law, and Amulek's saying, no, I am talking about a return to the real law. If you guys would abide by the laws of God, you wouldn't need all this other baloney. And they say, oh, you're reviling against our law. And no, he says, I am speaking in favor of your law, the law you're supposed to be following, to your condemnation. And you don't get it.
1: Yeah, they really don't get it because right here in 28, they say, well, now he know that this man is a child of the devil. So, so this is a moral and a kind of a religious te- statement, right? That he's a child of the devil. Well, why why is he a child of the devil? For he hath lied unto us. For he hath spoken against our law, and now he says that he has not spoken against it. <laughs> it's this. It's this whole. They they just don't get it. They haven't got it yet. They don't. They haven't seen the connection that they're that Amulex trying to make there.
0: Right. So uh, moving into chapter eleven, uh, you know, there's always this little like side note and sort of pondering we have to do as to why. Mormon, with all of the pain he has to go through to engrave the plates, why spend so much time talking about their weights of money?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I've know. never figured that out. I've never <laughs> figured that out. I've never heard a good argument for it. But he does. Yeah, he he carries on for verse after verse. Just for him to be able to come over here to say, and Zeezrom wanted to to give, what, six aunties of silver? Is that what it was? Six yeah. aunties or yeah, <laughs> just to deny God. He's like, wow, that must have, uh, that must have really impacted Mormon when he was rigged. He's like, guys, you have to totally understand the entire weight and measurement system of our monetary <laughs> currency to really get the weight of what Zeezrom was really trying to do here. And I'm like, I, no, I don't. He could have just said, and that was the most expensive coinage we had, and he wanted to offer six of them. And I'm like, oh, okay, gotcha.
0: <laughs> he could have just said a lot of money. Like, I mean... <laughs> uh yeah (laughs) yeah, it it is interesting uh there's so many things in the book of mormon where we get these little blips of like okay what's the implication here for nephite culture and we never find out we have no idea and for some reason mormon goes into this whole explanation of this so that we really get this part of nephite culture but it's like how come we didn't get like other more interesting parts of nephite culture (laughs) because this you know on the scale of interesting this probably not uh, you know towards the high side but Having said all of that, you know we've we've just spent a bunch of time talking about it. Um, having said all of that, this does bring us to the conclusion. He offered him a bunch of money. Now this is this is interesting to me because surely they know that Amulek is already a pretty rich guy. Um, he 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 says it. They he says he's of no small reputation among them. They know that Amulek is well to do already. So I'm not sure where Zeezrom thinks he's getting with offering him this money. Maybe the idea is that well, Amulek, uh, whatever profession he had, was you know we, he was always seen as a greedy person, and so we know that we can trick Amulek by just giving him some money. I'm not I'm not really sure, but here uh, Zeezrom is surprised that Amulek is a changed man, and this doesn't tempt him anymore. He doesn't he doesn't care about that, um, and this is where I think that. Even though Ziezrim does get still a little bit antagonistic, I think that simple response of Amulek to Ziezrim's offer is where Ziezrim might start getting that little prick, uh, little option to start listening to what Amulek actually has to say. Uh, well, so. yeah,
1: when Amulet comes over here and he's like, oh, thou child of hell, why, why tempt ye me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that would land a little bit. That's a, that's a little off-putting. If, if anybody ever came over to me and he's like, "Ye child of hell, why are you tempting me? <laughs> I, I'd be like, what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I think here at the the end of chapter 11, where Amulet kind of closes off his discourse, the part that apparently really grabs Zeezrom is talking about the resurrection. And that's interesting. So the fear of these people is always of death, right? You know, we're mortal. We're going to die. And they're planning on tricking and threatening Alman and Amulek, um, and we find out later, with imprisonment and death because they think this is the worst thing that can happen. And here Amulek is talking about how wonderful and great the resurrection is going to be. Um, and I think Zeezrom's like, okay, this guy isn't even afraid of death. He's talking about the resurrection, and so that piques his interest a little bit. He starts asking questions about it later. Um, the verse forty-six, sort of to to tie this point up. Uh, now, when Amulek had finished these words, the people began again to be astonished, and also Zeezrom began to tremble. And thus ended the words of Amulek. Or this is all that I have written, uh, because he had just talked about the resurrection. So here Amulek starts asking questions. Uh, Alma starts to explain. I love verse five of chapter twelve because this this really shows that Alma's perspective is is starting to change or or has been changing, and he's he's uh, trying to view the people of Ammonihah or Zeezrom in particular as not the enemy, right? And now. He's talking to Zeezrom about what's just happened. And he says, now this was a plan of thine adversary, and he hath exercised his power in thee. And I love here how Alma doesn't make Zeezrom the enemy. He says, Zeezrom, you're not my enemy. There's an enemy of us both that is trying to put you in bondage and control you. And think about your motivations that you just had just a few minutes ago. And where did those come from? Those weren't from the good part of you. They were from the bad part of you. And let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, I I love this. In verse 5 for me, this is where persuasion wins against violence, where all of a sudden they see that Alma and Amulek have stood up against the confrontation and the threat of violence, that they have now trumped it with persuasion and gentleness and meekness and love and everything that was mentioned in section 121 that we came to. And I, and I love this because in verse 41 of section 121, it says that there is no power or influence that can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. So there, there's no power in the priesthood. There is no even influence in the priesthood that can or even ought to so, so we're talking about not just in reality, but in ethics, like it's the normative claim, like should there exist maybe some power or influence in the priesthood that is not according to persuasion and long suffering and gentleness? He's like, no, there's no power. There is nothing. And what I find is so powerful in this verse goes back to what we were talking about, the perception of who and what God is, that there is no, the priesthood is God's authority. It's his power. It's, we're told that it's the, it's that thing by which he organized and created brought order into the cosmos. He made made order out of chaos. It's that by which all things were done that were done. And here they're saying is that there is no power or influence in the priesthood that can or even ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, but by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness, by meekness and by love unfeigned, by kindness and by pure knowledge, which will greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile, only reproving with sharpness. And here's the sword. Here's the sword of God. The sharp two-edged, you know, sharper than any two-edged sword. Reproving be times with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth and afterwards an increase of love towards him who thou hast reproved, lest he esteem thee thine enemy. That Thine enemy, that this person, before they think that you're the enemy, may know that thy faithfulness is stronger than even the cords of death. Let thy bowels be full of charity towards all men, and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrines of the priesthood shall distill upon thy souls as the dews from heaven. And the Holy Ghost will be thy constant companion, and thy scepter an unchanging scepter of righteousness and dominion of truth, and thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, Now, here's where it gets crazy. All without compulsory means, it shall flow into thee forever. For me, this is Alma right now. This is Alma and Amulek. Every every word here is Alma and Amulek. They are there standing in persuasion. They are being long-suffering and gentle and meek and loving. That they have reproved with sharpness when necessary, but they have followed up. Just like what you said there, Ben. He's like, you're not my enemy that this is now the ad that the plan of thine adversary he's not saying that zeezrom's the adversary he's identifying that the satan the accuser that spirit which is in all of us that that maybe the embodiment lucifer the embodiment of satan that's the adversary and he's tried to have power over you you know in the scriptures it's it's fascinating that mormon seems to take a lot of effort to talk about the power of deliverance and sometimes it's spiritual and sometimes it's physical and then he tries and then he marries the two as though as if to teach us that they're one and the same and it's deliverance is so often sought for in fear and it's not found there however when we live by faith it is not even the focus or the point of our experience and yet the lord then provides somehow this deliverance through love and grace and his in the priesthood this priesthood power of persuasion and gentleness and meekness so that his children can then have confidence in him. So this deliverance is, is weird. It's like when you want it in fear, it's, it's aloof and you have to fight for it and you live in fear. But when you live in faith and you don't really care and it's like, like a Benedi, if I die, I die. If I don't, I don't. And like Alma here says, they're thrown into prisons and the prisons wouldn't cast them. They're not afraid of what's going to happen to their physical body. All they are there for is to live in truth. And in doing so, then at that point, if they're thrown in jail, they're thrown in jail. But they recognize that Zeezrom is not their enemy. And this really brings me back to President Kimball's uh, 1976 talk. I've quoted from a bunch. You've quoted from a bunch. We're going to quote from it a bunch forever. Um, it'll <laughs> forever be the thing, always, I, right? forever and always, um, The False Gods We Worship, where he talks about how we are a warlike people. We are a people who rely on the false gods of armies and missiles and bullets, and we, and we rely on them for our preservation when there has been a covenant and a promise given to us that if we turn to God and follow him with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength, then he will deliver us. And that when we are in a wicked state, we turn anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God whenever we see a threat. And in doing that, we are commanded to be better. We are commanded to go out and to take the gospel to our enemy so that they are no longer our enemies. And so when I see God saying, I will come and destroy my enemies, for me now, I cannot read that violently anymore. That, that, that way of thinking has gone from me now. Whenever I read about God destroying the enemy, it's always God coming to reclaim his children. It's always God to destroy the natural man out of them so that they are no longer an enemy. And so when I see Alma doing that, I just, wow. Wow, that's amazing.
0: I love that, that perspective. Um, and I think it is a much more consistent way of allowing the scriptures teach, to teach us the nature of God. Um, so that we can see Christ more as we read the scriptures. I love how as you started reading uh, those verses in D&C 121, you could stop. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's it's a way, I mean, that's just the way that section is, right? Like, it's some of the yeah, most you powerful. Do, you just start. It's some of the most powerful words in scripture that have ever been written. I think that was something, you know, Elder Holland said once, you know, just uh, you read that and you just have to like sigh afterwards because it's just. It's astounding. It's amazing. It's simple, but just so powerful. And yeah, I think you're right. This is where Alma and Amulek have, uh, they've waxed strong in the spirit. The spirit is with them here and they are really exhibiting this. And here's the Ezra where he has, he started to empty himself. um, And he's, he's mourning and sort of fearing at the same time, this loss of, of this old identity that he has, and he's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So here he starts asking them questions. Tell me more about this. I want to understand. And and Alma says, "Okay, this is the process of hungering and thirsting. Okay, when you've been starving spiritually for a very long time, you've got it. You've got to take it a bit at a time here. Okay. So um, he says." It is given unto many to know the mysteries of God. Nevertheless, they are laid under a strict command that they shall not impart only according to the portion of his word, which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which they give unto him. In other words, I know a lot more than I'm going to tell you. <laughs> um, when, as you're ready for it, as the Spirit directs me, you can know all things. He goes on in those following verses, according to your... Um, obedience, your diligence, and heed uh, unto the commandments, you can receive all this knowledge. There's nothing that the Lord is going to keep from you. He can teach you all things, give you all knowledge as you are ready to receive it as evidenced by, or maybe evidence isn't even the right word, but as witnessed by the fact that you are obeying what the light and knowledge that you've already received. And I think that's a natural process. It's it's not something that, you know, God has to have a chalkboard or a spreadsheet out for to see, you know, okay, you've got that, let's move on to level two or whatever, right? But.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And in verse 11, where you ha- we have departed so far away from God— And they that will harden their hearts to them is given the lesser portion of the word until they know nothing concerning his mysteries. And then they are taken captive by the devil and led down to his, led by his will down to destruction. Now this is what is meant by the chains of hell. I think that's a fantastic imagery there because it's really showing that we are the ones that forge our chains. We're the ones that, we're the ones that do it. We are the authors of taking them on and taking them off. And the thing is, is we don't know a lot of the times that we are the ones putting them on. We never look at us, and we never see our chains. And I love a Christmas story there, right? with With Marley when he comes in, and he's he's like, "I've made these chains, link by link, and yard by yard."
0: You mean um, Christmas Carol? A Christmas, oh, Christmas story car- is a different movie. Uh- <laughs>
1: Well, you know, sorry, one, I had the,
0: to I had to get that. Well in it's, there. It's,
1: right, it's it's right it's right when uh, when the BB gun came in and they shot yeah, yeah, those. The at Christmas right. past and,
0: <laughs> Anyway, yes, okay, Marley and his chains. Great
1: Yeah, Marley and his chains. I'm sorry a Christmas Carol. Um <laughs> two great movies I always see at the same time. So yeah. Um But when you have these chains that have been made, they're of our own make. And I think these are far more epistemic. I think these are far more matters of perception and of the chosen reality that we've lived by as opposed to the reality of our our current state. I'm coming to a belief that we are all living, as I said, in a Christ-soaked world where we are all in union already with God. And what is lacking is not the reality that we're with God and the Spirit is not already there through us and in us in all things, like DNC eighty eight says, but that what we're lacking is the choice to perceive it. It's it's that the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not, that we are living in a in a world and in a universe full of brilliant light, and we're simply choosing not to see the reality of it. Because the way that our society and our culture and our civilization are built. The way that we interact, the things that we take for granted when we step outside every day, our world and the, and the construct of the reality around us is based on certain assumptions that most of us, myself included, very rarely ever question, let alone identify. And it's hard to question them if you can't identify them, and it's hard for us to be able to look for these assumptions. Because there, it's not like anybody has them out on billboards. Like here's the here's the assumption that you make for this, or uh, for our society and the way that our culture and civilization work. And what I mean by that is one example of that is this concept of scarcity that I brought up before in different discussions. Um, this concept of scarcity is actually the backbone of all economic thought, of every single economic theory that has ever or will ever exist. The bedrock, most fundamental, basic principle there is of scarcity. It's the supply and demand: how much supply is there versus how little versus how much demand. Um, It's also the one of the founding fundamental principles for all political philosophy, and this goes back to when Thomas Hobbes talked about the state of nature or this hypothetical human existence when government doesn't exist or there's no civilization. He calls this hypothetical state of nature, nasty, brutish and short. And the reason it's nasty, brutish and short, when there is no government, we simply live in the state of what, uh, like anarchy with no rulers or whatever for him is because we have finite resources and we're always at war with each other to be able to get our piece of the pie. And so scarcity is a governing fundamental concept that we're born into that shapes justifications for the way that we operate. And it's funny because we even see that in the people here. Scarcity was what drove the selfishness of the lawyers and judges. It's money. They wanted money. They wanted their piece of the pie, and they wanted more of it than somebody else, so long as they could get their piece of it. We see it in the economic turmoil of the people in Alma 4. When they had costly apparel and they had fine twined linens and they had more money than everybody else because they now are perceived to have more possession in a system of scarcity than somebody else. And that somehow this means something. It, just, it doesn't mean anything. It just means that you have a particular piece of cloth on your body. It doesn't mean anything. But in a scarcity mindset, it does. And so there's a lot of these assumptions that are made. And what I think is fascinating, and this is kind of getting into next week's discussion of Alma 13, is I find that Alma is going to, and Amulek are now going to bring a discussion about how God's kingdom works. Because the scriptures always have this juxtaposition between the civilizations of men and the kingdoms of men and the governments of men and the assumptions and the axioms and the principles that they're established and how God's kingdom and the kingdom of heaven are built on an entirely different set of assumptions and set of realities and set of principles. And what's happening is a lot of the time we live in the one world of men and of our civilizations and cultures, and we try to project that onto God's kingdom to make sense of it. And I've done it, and I I still do it. I, I find times all over the place where I still do it. But and, and part of it's just ignorance, and sometimes it's just chosen. And I think a lot of the times for me that when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I've disregarded it for so long because it is what some authors have called the constitution to the kingdom of God. It's, it's starting to lay out the basic elements, the building blocks of what a kingdom of God person is going to be like. And that, you know, that's the Beatitudes is the preamble there to this constitution. And we have by and large rejected the Sermon on the Mount because it doesn't fit into our culture. We we have to justify it away so much to fit into our cultural way of living that it, we basically gut it to where it's completely worthless and, and pathetic and it's just kind of a list of sayings that are too hard to live. And so we just relegate it for some time when Jesus comes. But chapter 13 for me next week is going to be this chapter where we're going to see that Alma and Almulek are now giving the people this whole new world based on a completely different set of concepts and principles and a way of living to bless their lives and to bring them everything. And they're going to reject it, which I th- for me, it's one of the saddest stories in the Book of Mormon.
0: It is, and, and you're right. It is a pattern. They give him basically the pattern of Zion here, um, and it's based on, as you say, completely different assumptions um, about the nature of of reality and our perception of that reality. Um, and it's a beautiful discourse about um, Alma, Alma's realization of his calling. As a high priest, and um, it's the only place I know of in the Book of Mormon that hints at the idea of a pre-mortal existence and so it's a it's a very interesting commentary on that. So I look forward to that discussion.
1: All right, Ben well, I think we uh, I think we kind of almost got that into sixty minutes, but not quite.
0: yeah, not quite. Um, you know <laughs> though I feel like we said a lot of to you know, I feel like we had a good discussion about this that uh, didn't uh, a lot. Uh, what do I want to say? A bunch of new content in terms of our discussion uh, that didn't intersect too much uh, or to overlap too much with uh, the LDS Liberty podcast that we did. So it was it was a different discussion.
1: Yes, I'm excited about that. We did it. So for those listening, I will go ahead and we will post those LDS Liberty discussions up as well onto the, onto the, uh, the social media page and into the various groups that we're in. And so check those out if you want to, there's four podcasts. They're all each about an hour long. Um, if they, uh, if there are any interest to you and we, we go through a, lo- a lot more in depth with kind of line by line and, and so yeah, it's a different, it's a different discussion, but I'm, yeah, I, I've loved what we've done tonight. Agreed. Okay. Well, until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening.